YouTube will now be allowing doctors and nurses to apply to be credible health sources on the platform, its latest effort to combat misinformation. This is Pulse Check. I'm Ruth Reader. Here are a couple of headlines I'm watching. On the campaign trail, Republicans are talking about the opioid crisis as a problem with U.S. borders and immigration policy, NPR reports. Over 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses last year, making the conversation about substance abuse a necessary one. The debate matters because people who have suffered from addiction are concerned that talking points that link substance abuse to crime shifts the conversation away from one about public health policy and the infrastructure needed to support those who suffer from addiction. Also on the campaign trail, conversations about Medicare. Republicans and Democrats are battling over their vision for the future of the popular health program for older Americans, reports Stat. House Republicans released a policy document earlier this year that proposes increasing the age at which Medicare benefits kick in, also increasing competition between Medicare plans and private plans, and cutting subsidies. But it is unclear if these policies would ever make it through Congress because they stand to impact health systems, insurers, and Americans at large. And reporter David Lim just got back from the MedTech conference in Boston. That's right. It's an annual conference held by the medical device industry, which is significant because it's the largest gathering of medical device manufacturers. And there's a heavy regulatory presence as well. So the Food and Drug Administration has staff there. And this year, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services also had a healthy contingent. I heard that Robert Califf was there and made a statement, made some news. Yeah, uh, Califf gave one of the plenary sessions um, to the conference, and he talked a lot about kind of the impact that the pandemic had on the agency. And one thing that was interesting that he talked about was that the agency has been conducting employee surveys kind of about what the future of work looks like at the agency. Much like the rest of us, we're all trying to figure out what our work environment looks like moving forward industry and Congress have given FDA a lot of input on kind of what they want to see the agency do. And they basically are going to be making some decisions in the upcoming weeks about what type of hybrid work environment the agency has moving forward. A lot of staff are really critical and have been working in person already at the agency, but others have been working largely remotely. So we'll kind of see what type of stance the FDA takes towards workplace decisions in the, in the upcoming weeks. So what else did he talk about besides whether or not the FDA is going to be able to work from home or not? Yeah, so another interesting thing that he talked about was the Valid Act. And this is a piece of legislation that has been under development for several years. Essentially, it has to do with how laboratory-developed tests and in vitro diagnostics are regulated. So right now, there's two categories of medical tests. Lab-developed tests are usually tests that are traditionally used in a single laboratory, And then in vitro diagnostics are usually developed by a commercial manufacturer. And the legislation is trying to create a single framework for those types of tests to make sure that results from medical tests like cancer tests or whatnot are clinically relevant and something that patients can rely on. And this is a bipartisan bicameral bill in the Senate. Senator Richard Burr, who is retiring, has been very active on the issue. He's been working with historically Senator Michael Bennett and then more recently Senator Patty Murray on this legislation. And there's counterparts in the House as well. So if you recall, the FDA user fee programs were recently reauthorized by Congress for another five years. However, they were passed without any additional legislation attached to them. 
And the impact of that is that a lot of lawmakers want to revisit several of those FDA-adjacent legislative priorities that were dropped off that package at the end of the year. And the interesting thing that Caleb talked about was that he raised this possibility that if Congress fails to pass the ballot act and come to an agreement on what that type of regulatory framework should look like, the FDA may actually go ahead and issue federal rulemaking to kind of act as a substitute for legislation. I think the FDA really is interested in trying to make sure that patients are able to rely on a test that they're using to make uh, consequential decisions about their health. So that's something that I'm keeping a close eye on. That's super interesting. What would be the big difference if FDA advanced rules versus uh, the Valid Act getting approved? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's been decades of debate over what FDA's regulatory authority is over laboratory-developed tests, which are partially regulated by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under a different framework. FDA has always maintained that they have enforcement um, over these types of tests, um, but they've had some discretion towards them in the past. However, these types of tests are being used uh, for more and more complex decision-making, um, and the tests themselves are becoming more complicated. So the FDA has had greater interest in moving forward with a regulatory overhaul. Under the Trump administration, the HHS general counsel, Bob Charo, issued a legal opinion that the FDA did not have the authority to regulate laboratory-developed tests. However, that legal opinion was retracted under the Biden administration, um, and the FDA maintains that they think that they have the authority to act in this space. So uh, to kind of bring it back to your original question, Essentially, the difference between legislation, which would change the law, and then federal rulemaking is that most people agree that legislation would provide far more legal backing for whatever framework uh, is moved forward in the future. So CMS was also there, which we haven't talked about. Did anybody speak from CMS or what was their engagement like at the conference? Right. So they had several high-level officials who were at the conference. And the main thing that the CMS officials talked about was this effort to provide coverage for what are called breakthrough medical devices, so innovative medical devices uh, for the Medicare population. So under the Trump administration, there was a federal regulation that would have provided four years of Medicare coverage automatically for breakthrough medical devices upon their approval. However, the Biden administration uh, retracted that regulation over concerns about the applicability of the clinical evidence for certain devices for the Medicare population. And they're basically developing a second attempt at creating a pathway for these types of devices to get covered more quickly. So this is an attempt at trying to solve an issue what the industry refers to as the value of death for medical devices. So a lot of medical devices are developed by small companies that don't necessarily have the funding or the runway to keep their business going over a long period of time. So they basically argue that they need certainty when it comes to when their products are approved and brought to market, that they will actually get reimbursed quickly so that they aren't continuing to burn money. That's so interesting. Can you just talk a little bit about the difference between the two policies or sort of how they want to uh, ameliorate that? Yeah. So I think one thing that CMS has made pretty evident is that they want to make sure that these devices will have a benefit for a person who is a Medicare beneficiary. 
a large part of that might mean that there are strings attached to coverage. So making sure that you have evidence that is being generated if there is a coverage decision in place for these types of devices, I think is something that CMS has signaled that they want to have the ability to do. And I think the other thing that CMS has said is that they want to have this be a voluntary program, so not necessarily have it be applied to every single breakthrough medical device. And there are hundreds of these types of designations that have been awarded by the FDA. A few dozen devices have been brought to market. Well, thank you so much for joining me to talk about MedTech. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's good to be back in D.C. A new study I've been following found that sending patients automated text messages to check in on them after they've left the hospital can reduce their chances of readmission or a visit to the emergency room. The starting point was that the period of time after hospital discharges can be a turbulent one for patients. And when they leave the hospital, there's a sort of sudden drop off they have in, in medical supervision. And we were trying to fill in that gap. Eric Bresman is a hospitalist and a fellow in the National Clinician Scholars Program at the University of Pennsylvania. Patients during that time struggle with uh, new medications, ongoing symptoms, coordinating follow-up appointments. Right up to the point to leave the hospital, they have kind of 24-hour help with all of those things. And as soon as they go home, they lack all of that help. Our thought was that we could build an automated texting tool to basically kind of fill in those hours through a strategy that we call automated hovering. But the basic idea is to sort of keep patients connected uh, during those times. So we built uh, an automated texting program for 30 days after discharge where they receive text messages from their primary care practice. They found that patients really liked this. We were highly engaged. Um, over 80% of the time, they responded to these introductory messages to the program. And then even at the end of the program, when we asked them how likely they were to sort of recommend this program to someone else, it was very likely that they would. Uh, and then the other thing we looked at were actual clinical outcomes. You know, what we were sort of most interested in was, did this reduce the likelihood that they were you know, going to come back to the hospital rather than use the services from the primary care practice, which is of great interest to the health system and you know, also to the patient because they probably would prefer to stay at home. As for barriers to this working in the real world... Payment for virtual care and digital medicine is a challenge because in the traditional fee-for-service context where interactions are paid for every time you kind of have a traditional visit, whether it's a visit to the hospital or a visit to the primary care practice, everything that happens between those visits is maybe of value to the patient, but not necessarily of value to the physician because they may not get reimbursed for every message they receive, all this kind of work they do outside of visit hours. A lot of health systems and policymakers kind of shift towards a more value-based payment model, then there may be value in these things. And we're starting to demonstrate that here, that maybe it does reduce readmissions and it does reduce kind of time spent in the hospital. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Amy Reese is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Ruth Reeder. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.